Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Welcome to the 13th encounter of the Bullshit Artists. I'm Roy Verado, uh, here with Jack Crittenden. How are you doing, Jack? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm excellent. I survived another week here in the city. It was a, a sort of a long week for me, action-packed. Um, I went to a concert at the Blue Note Jazz Club on Wednesday night. I saw night. that. I saw you posted some, I don't want, don't want to call them clips. They weren't quite long enough to be a clip, but uh, yeah, <laughs> some things on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yes. I was, I had a simultaneously horrible and fantastic seat. It was right next to the stage, like two feet away, but my back was technically to the stage. So I had to like turn to the side, uh, which was, you know, uncomfortable, but it was super cool. Cause I got to see Robert Glasper from like three feet away, pounding on the on the keys, he was doing a tribute to Chick Corea. Are you into jazz? I don't know if we talked about jazz before at all. I am. I am not. But it leads to the question: What's the attraction for you mm. with jazz? That's a great question. I mean, on the one hand, I just got into it. I was exposed to it at a young age because my dad has always been into jazz, and he used to play. I just remember riding around with him in the car from a young age and he would be listening to the jazz radio station. And so I just was exposed to it early and for whatever reason, really dug it. But I mean, this, as an, this is a radio station out of Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm forgetting, you know, probably public radio of some kind. I forget hmm. what it was called, but they used to play jazz all the time on it. W something or other. Uh, and so, yeah, so I would listen to it all the time. And there was a guy named Len Hendry. I remember his name, who would host these long, you know, hours of jazz music. And the dude was ancient. Uh, you know, when I when I was young, he was old, old as hell. And he was but he was had encyclopedic knowledge of jazz and just would talk about all the different. So he would do different themes and, you know, whether it was Miles Davis or Coltrane or focusing on a particular instrument or whatever. So listen to a lot of that and just got into it. And, you know, there's there's more to jazz than people who are not into jazz, I think, are aware of. You know, there's many different strands of jazz and styles and periods of jazz. I like jazz fusion in particular, which combines jazz with rock, you know, in, in intriguing ways. So, so who are the who are the uh, practitioners? You so one Chicoria. Exactly. Chick Corea would be one. John McLaughlin was a guitarist that would dabble in this kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, Put Herbie. Off the deep Han end a little bit. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's a little crazy, but he's got some good stuff. He has a cool album with Santana where they cover right. uh, A Love Supreme by Coltrane uh, and turn it into just this madness of electric guitars. But um yeah herbie hancock i was listening to him earlier today exposing my roommate who's a 
uh, he's German and he's a classical music composer and he's, he's into jazz and he has, you know, a huge range of knowledge of music, but not super familiar with Herbie Hancock. So I was introducing him to some of his stuff, this album called Headhunters, which is just this maniacal funk jazz fusion, mm. you know? So yeah. And now the, like Robert Glasper is a pianist who sort of carries on that tradition, but he, uh, sort of does hip hop. He f- he fuses jazz with hip hop primarily. You know, he does straight straightforward jazz as well, obviously. But um, what what is straightforward jazz? Uh, yeah, like just classic uh, you know, instrumental, I guess. Without uh, without trying to fuse it with say hip hop or rock is is all I mean by that. Like traditional uh, jazz with a, whether it's a trio. You know, like he was playing. When he was covering the Chick Corea stuff, it was a trio. So it was him on piano, a guy named Christian McBride on bass, who's phenomenal. I was not familiar with him, but he's incredible. And then a drummer, you know, so the kind of the quintessential jazz trio there. But yeah, so that was my Wednesday. That was part of my Wednesday. Um, But yeah, I mean, in terms in terms of what I am interested in jazz, like if we you know dig deeper beyond just the mere fact that I was exposed to it, is I like the energy, you know, I like the the improvisation especially, and I think that jazz musicians, just to my you know uncultured ear, are some of the most sort of virtuosic. I think uh, that ability to improvise and uh, to sort of dynamically change and connect with one another they sort of throw you know throw the solos back and forth in a way that i find really entertaining and you can see them enjoying it as they do it so uh yeah that's that's why i love jazz i guess do you like uh comedy improv <laughs> I mean, if it's good, it's comedy is kind of like jazz, right? It's like if it's exactly if it's really good, it's really good, and well, the rest is fucking horrible. I- improv is like jazz. <clears throat> Most comedy, if you think of comedy as as the stand-up genre, that's an that's an incredible craft. Sure, but it is excruciatingly crafted. And laid out <laughs> right through trial and error, usually yeah. of testing and yeah, stand-ups yeah. aren't up there riffing. No, mostly, yeah. They they have almost every word is is carrying weight. It's like a magician. Mm. There's nothing on the stage for a mu- for a magician that isn't center central to the trick. Right. And it's right. Nothing thing. superfluous. Nothing superfluous. It's the same thing with stand-up, I think. Jazz is, is different because, as you said, there's so much riffing and improv going on. Yeah, it can, and it can get messy sometimes, even among the best musicians, yeah. you know, yeah. Which, well, but not yeah, in a bad way. You said, like, comedy improv. It's, yeah, yeah. You know, you're out there. You're out there on the high <laughs> wire. Exactly. And sometimes it falls flat or sometimes, you know, uh, you need a lifeline from somebody else. So like, yeah, I mean, I do like improv sometimes if it's done well, like obviously the cla- the television classic, I think is like, whose line is it anyway? Right. I always enjoyed that. Um, Wayne Brady and those guys, but yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think you're right about sort of the, the artistry of stand-up comedy in particular, you look at some of Carlin stuff, for example, and he 
makes it look sometimes like it's just coming off the top of his head, but the fluidity of it and the specific word choices and things like that and the transitions and the connections, you can tell he's put an incredible amount of thought into it and worked it out, you know, time and time again. Yeah. So, yeah, I appreciate that. And I actually, that kind of, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking, I was, I wanted to ask you if you've seen this new show called Only Murders in the Building by Steve yes. Martin. Have you been watching Steve that? Steve Martin and Martin Short. Yeah. Yeah. Did you finish it? Yes. Oh, okay, good. So we can talk about it. What'd you think? Uh, well, I'm a fan of the two, the two male actors. I don't know the female. She, she is apparently a, pop star of some kind i don't really she's not she's not an actor by trade is that right yeah um i know a little bit about her uh she was like a disney you know disney actress as a teen or something oh really? so she was on tv and then she transitioned into music and that was her main thing as she got older and now i guess she's kind of circling back to acting but i like i know of her i've you know i've known of her because she's famous and whatever and she's uh been around but i didn't know that that was her in the show because i've never really i've only ever heard her music i never watched her on tv so i was like who is this chick like she's kind of funny like but i don't know who the fuck she is so i thought that was interesting casting if that's where you're headed with that you know yeah i wasn't sure in the early episodes whether she could she was carrying her weight yeah uh, but you know you're up against Steve Martin and Martin Short. I mean, two two right. great comedic actors. Exactly. And, Who and also have a long history together. Have a, have a history together. And Martin Short has also been in a couple of dramatic roles where he's very good. I don't think I don't I can't think up off the top of my head whether Steve Martin has been in anything you'd call dramatic. But they're uh-huh. very good. Now, were you leading in to say that a lot of that was improv? No, I was just kind of transitioning because like we were talking about comedy in general and I have been watching okay. that and I, I thought I, I genuinely think it's one of the best shows I've ever seen and certainly one of the best in recent memory um, in terms what, of the writing, the acting, just everything. Okay, I don't know that I could go that far. So now I'm curious what what leads you to to put it up there. That yeah, high? I think, I guess, I mean, part of it, uh, admittedly, is sort of the New York bias. It's very familiar to me. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. it's quintessentially New York. And so there are all these sort of little, you know, it just, it feels like it's a show about my life in some ways, you know, just by virtue of living in New York. And especially like having roommates and living in a large building where there are lots of interesting people coming and going and just the the small things that make life in new york relatable to other new yorkers so you can tell there's like a deep and abiding love of new york and like the city is very well represented i think in the show so that's part of it but i think beyond that um the like the chemistry between steve martin and martin short i think is incredible and they play off of each other very well but also what takes it to sort of the next level for me is the meta nature of the show. Like it's a, it's a TV show that's based on a podcast within the show, right. That is 
about a murder in their building and and it's also covered by another podcast which sometimes is on a tv show like jimmy fallon's within the show like there's just many layers and interesting uh meta references including also then sort of to the outside like little jokes about like steve martin's career (laughs) you know in real life and things like that that I found like where he'll say like, yeah, nobody's been interested in me for years or whatever. And of course, Steve Martin's character plays or the the character that Steve Martin is playing used to play a cheesy nineties style detective on a TV show. Right. And then he has these moments where he like verbatim delivers dialogue (laughs) from his fucking fictional TV show, you know, and, and then they show themselves, of course, recording the podcast. And then there's like these dream sequences where Martin Short is uh, is this like, I guess, director, producer of musicals. And he's uh, sort of like at one point he like auditions. He holds these fantasy auditions for possible killers as he's sort of conjuring up the podcast and trying to figure out who's interesting <laughs> you know, who's worth talking about on the podcast. So I don't know. There's just, there's just many levels and layers to it that I found really intriguing and just uh, made me chuckle time and time again. Well, that's the way to watch a TV show that has some merit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, you're, you, you uh, enjoyed it, but you also took it seriously in the sense that you were, you were aware uh, how do I say this without making it sound as if you're a critic? You were aware mm-hmm. of the elements that were making the show really good. Maybe you weren't yes. thinking about that as you're watching the episodes because you're just enjoying the episodes. But on reflection, mm. you could come to see the the, the uh, composition and how well put together it was. Yes. I yes. had no appreciation on that level whatsoever. Oh, okay. I'm not from New York, as I've said, I said last time we spoke. Right. New York is not one of my favorite places. <laughs> um, I could understand that it was set in New York. I, could, I can see why people like New York. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine why anyone would want to live in New York, but that's a different story. Because uh, we're psychotic. That's why. Anyone who, <laughs> anyone who lives here is a nut. I think. <laughs> well, there's a lot of them. What, what, yeah. What's the population? 12 million people in New York City now? There's yeah, more, so, something much like more that. Than that. It changes also. It's like during the day, you know, it practically doubles from commuters. And I, I might think that they are crazier actually than the people who live here uh, to commute in and like by car (laughs) into Manhattan uh, every day is is bonkers. If you were offered a job in the city, Mm -hmm. would you have a reservation about accepting it? Or your or your a love hate relationship uh, it isn't quite that stark. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely I would have to look at the particular details in this and this sort of circumstance of that offer, but I would be inclined to take it, you know, if I could make it work. Um, so as long as it would pay well enough that I could sort of reach the threshold of what I think is necessary to survive in the city and in a part of the city that I find, you know, tenable, then yeah, I would do it at least for a while. I mean, you know, I like it here. I I would need to be able, if I'm going to stay here long-term, I would need to be able to get out reliably, 
you know, uh, just even, you know, if that means getting a car and paying $500 a month for a fucking parking space or whatever, then that, that might be something that I need to have, or maybe some kind of rail pass, you know, I don't know to get upstate, but something to be able to escape because this place is, you know, it's like Manhattan Island prison from John Carpenter's escape from New York. Like (laughs) uh, I need a hang glider, (laughs) you know, to get the fuck out of here sometimes. But yeah, you know, I love it here uh, as much as I hate parts of it. Um, There are certain, there's a certain energy and there are things happening here that to my knowledge are not available and certainly not in the way that they are available here anywhere else. Okay, good answer. (laughs) So. Okay, so. Part of your Wednesday was at the jazz club, which doesn't seem too taxing. Uh, no. What else was happening? Grading. I believe you told me at one point you were grading exams. Yeah, I've been grading exams, which I hate doing. You know, grading is like the worst part of everything related to education. Why? In my opinion. Uh, it's just so time consuming and so pointless. Kafka-esque. Well, it can't be. Seriously, you think it's pointless? I do. Yeah, I do. I would abolish grading. You know, not to say that I would eliminate all forms of assessment necessarily. Okay. You know, that, maybe like a narrative type thing, like Hampshire College does. You know. Well, that that's a distinction. Maybe you should say more about <laughs> grading yeah. versus assessment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, uh, first of all, I think. Like I, my, my root kind of issue with it is the, the hidden curriculum aspects of it, which I think we've talked about before the way that, you know, uh, students develop this sort of mania for high scores and they're, they're so preoccupied with their GPA and, and competing to be, have a higher score than other people so they can get into grad school or get the scholarship or get a job or whatever. And then that also sort of orients their whole approach to education where they don't care really about anything except whatever hoops they have to jump through in order to satisfy the particular instructor's requirements to get the score that they need and blah, blah, blah. And also how this kind of, uh, is, uh, you know, obedience training for the workplace uh, so that they become sort of habituated to performing in that fashion in pursuit of an extrinsic reward, like a salary, you know, the grade transforms into a salary and they just uh, become subservient to their boss in the same way that they were subservient to their um, to their teachers and their professors. So, you know, there's a whole line of inquiry uh, about this in like in the philosophy of education, basically, which goes back to this book called Schooling in Capitalist America by uh, Gintis and Bowles. And they suggest what they call the correspondence theory, which is basically that there is an isomorphism between the school and the and the workplace and then above all else what the schools are doing are just engaging in social reproduction of workers you know so all of that is for me bound up with the practice and the institution of grading in a way that i think is 
like very problematic and should be challenged and abolished. Yeah. Are you required to give a certain kind of exam? No. So I give blue book exams, essay questions, basically, which are part of why also it's a slog to grade, right? Because I have to read so much and I don't really offer much written commentary because I have so many students. So I'll give them scores. And then I say, look, you know, if you're unsatisfied or, or just simply curious about your score, then let's schedule a meeting and we can discuss, you know, face to face because that will save me uh, a lot of time and pain. What kinds of questions? Give me an example. Give me a couple of examples from the exam you just gave. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'll talk while I bring up the exam also. So it's basically like I'll give them short answer questions that are not necessarily uh, super deep. I'll ask them to sort of just explain a concept. And so, for example, um, on the midterm exam, I had two different sort of columns to, for the students to choose from. They had to choose three, uh, at least one from each column. And one column would include concepts from Plato and the Stoics that we read. So for the philosopher king, kind of a classic example, or the allegory of the cave or the tripartite soul. They would choose one of those and then briefly give a short answer, sort of summary and explanation, uh, like a, a paragraph or a page or two, you know, in a blue book. So do that, have three of those. Some from Aristotle would be like, you know, the golden mean or the three type, three types of friendship from uh, the ethics. And then, but the long answer questions, like, so for example, um, this was probably the most popular one from this exam and typically tends to be the most popular for this exam that I give. Imagine that you are the prisoner who has escaped Plato's allegorical cave You've reached the outside world, seen the sun, and now you need to decide what to do next. Will you return to the cave? Why or why not? If you do return, what will you say to your fellow prisoners? How will you convince them that they should not kill you and that instead they should escape the cave too? Um, yeah, so that's one. Do you want me to give another? Or you have well, thoughts on that? Uh, I don't want this to turn into an interrogation. True. Or an exam for listeners, but <laughs> although I maybe do. they need it. Maybe but I do. Yeah. Uh, but one one thing I want to say as a as a uh, editorial aside, mm. I want to apologize to our listeners because last week you and I spent some amount of time I don't really remember how much talking about Plato's allegory of the cave, and mm. there may be people who aren't familiar with it, and so I want to apologize that we didn't lay out what that what the allegory is. That's so true. just in short form, let me just say what it is. Mm. It is uh, an image that Plato creates uh, in which prisoners have been chained to stakes or they've been chained in a way that they are immobile. They can't move their, their legs. They can't move their heads. And they are forced, therefore, to look only at the back wall of the cave. Behind them on a parapet is a fire and I think this is right. You correct me because you've read it more recently than I have. Sure. Uh, in front of and below that is another parapet where um, 
humans, I think we assume they're humans, maybe they're described as humans, are carrying uh, artifacts or puppets that are, look like humans, animals, other things. Yes. And those, those items cast shadows on the wall in front of the prisoners who can only see the shadows on the wall and nothing else. Right. Through some circumstance, a prisoner is released or escapes from the chains, turns to see the fire that casts the shadows, uh, is unable to see the fire because it's so bright, eventually can adjust, eyes adjust. There is a path leading up and out of the cave. He or she is forcibly dragged up this path where he or she then is forced into the sunlight, unable to see the sunlight because it's so bright. Eventually, uh, his or her eyes adjust where he, can, he or she can see shadows and then reflections in water and then eventually real objects. And that brings us to your point, which is, does the prison go back in to try to free prisoners or just say, too bad, I'm really enjoying my, my time here in the real sun. Uh, I'll see you later. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so uh, I, I don't want this to be, I don't want this to become Rory versus Jack. <laughs> why not? <laughs> well, all right, why not? But I'm, okay, these are, these are freshmen in an yep. introductory philosophy course. Mm -hmm. So most of what you are examining them on is their comprehension of what they're reading and what, and what you have talked about and they themselves have contributed to in class? Not really. So yes and no, I would say to that. It's like, it, it, yes, they, I, they must comprehend some stuff in order to answer the questions at all. But I don't expect them to really answer the questions particularly well. Well, but you have matching things, mm -hmm. right? That, that's got to be comprehension only. There's nothing. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I give them a study guide ahead of time and I allow them even to bring a note card to class uh, to help uh, prepare for those. See, I'm thrown off by all of that. <laughs> I, I, I'm Really, I'm, because it, it doesn't seem to be educating. Oh, interesting. It, it seems to me to, to resemble the, the very thing you were criticizing. Mm. Here are the here are the bolts passing by on the assembly line. Grab mm. one, screw it in here, and and keep going. Mm -hmm. It's just that's all it seems to be is saying here here's a little nugget about Plato. Can you match it to this other nugget, to the accurate mm. nugget? Okay, so if you said to me, for the first exam in this introductory class, I want I want to test their comprehension. Okay, I might buy that, but I'm, I really don't. It <laughs> seems to me what, what, where the education begins is with a long essay. Right. Because you presuppose comprehension. Yes. And then you're saying, build on what you know and, under, and then show me what you understand and then, how, and then how you can build on what you understand. Right. That's where it is. So why not just eliminate all the bullshit in front of the for the long essays? And because say, they have to be dragged up the path. <laughs> they got to be forced, I think. 
into so i'm i'm tapping into like i agree with you the short answers are are bullshit i'd rather not have them really do it at all but i i feel like in my experience that's sort of necessary because i'm bridging the gap between what they're used to and what i'm trying to get them to do so they're sort of jumping through that hoop they're memorizing or whatever familiarizing themselves and they're feeling sort of secure or confident or comfortable in understanding some of these key concepts. And then I give them something like that question I read to you that's just wide open. And that, as you say, presupposes a certain level of comprehension. And then I ask them in the, in the instructions themselves to philosophize on these questions. So it's like I'm giving them the tools and then I'm interested in their application of those tools okay, in those a, long answer questions. So there's an element of either distrust or or lack of faith. <laughs> From on, me to yeah, them? on your part, yeah. yeah. That you don't trust that they are uh, diligent enough or smart enough to comprehend what they're reading. And so you're testing whether they are. And then you're presupposing mm. uh, Okay, let's see with the, whatever level of comprehension you have, you can answer this question that requires moving into understanding. That's yeah. because you, you fundamentally don't trust them or you, well, you fundamentally don't trust them. No, I wouldn't frame it that way. It's not that I don't trust them. It's that I think, I think they, there needs to be a little, uh, some sort of I'm going to say coercion, but that's, I don't mean it quite that strongly, but there needs to be some kind of um, stick, I guess, pushing them towards a, a deeper comprehension than they might otherwise really acquire. If I were giving, for example, like multiple choice exam or something like that, which would be far easier for me to score and, uh, and what they're more familiar with doing. So they forcing them to write this stuff out, I think it, it gets them, it keys them into a different mode. And uh, at the same time, sort of imprints in their minds, some of these concepts. And like, maybe it would help address some of your concerns to understand that like this also dovetails with the written assignments that I give them separately prior to and after the exams, where I ask them, to choose a concept and elaborate on it uh, and explain it. I have more specific instructions, but they, they choose a concept in it and uh, explain it using textual references and also connecting it to the contemporary world in a way that demonstrates, that's meant to demonstrate their understanding, but also to communicate it in a way so that somebody else could learn what that concept is from what they are writing. So how, how often do they do that? They only they do that three times throughout the semester. And okay. uh, why not increase the frequency of that, cut back the exam and have the exam consist of one or two essay questions? Because I don't have a TA. So <laughs> I what? I don't want to do that every week is the thing. So the, well, no, the, no, I didn't say every week. You said yeah. two or three times. OK, so yeah. they're doing it. How long is the semester? 15 weeks? Yeah. OK, so instead of doing it two or three times, have them do it five times. Yeah. Right. Every and three then weeks. Just, yeah, I could. I could. And then and just, just give them the, do the, the long the, answer. Do the long answer, because that that way you're saying 
mean, see, it just it just just doesn't make any sense to me because if if I go on what you said, these are students who come to the university who have been inured into a certain path mm. of learning, which is uh, sometimes memorization, sometimes short answers. Maybe you give a little bit of what you think, but it pretty much I don't want to call it rote. It's 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 comprehension. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, something you could put on a flashcard. Right. Anything you can put on a flashcard to me is a complete waste of time. <laughs> Unless you're in elementary school and you're learning the multiplication tables, because then you, in order to build on that, you have to do it, which is why I said, are you building from comprehension to understanding? But you can't do that, it seems to me, and trust your students within the same exam. Mm. If your first exam was just comprehension, multiple choice, fill in the blanks, match this. Okay. You're just saying, okay, I have a bunch of students here. I have 35 in this class. 30 of them seem pretty capable. Five of them are struggling just with a comprehension. Either they're not doing the work or they're, they're not getting this for whatever reason. Okay. But that's not what's happening here. Mm. The diagnostic tool isn't, you're not building on any sort of diagnosis. It's not a diagnostic tool. Instead, what you've got is a bunch of addicts who are used to doing a certain kind of performance in class because the instruments they've been given are of a certain kind. Well, if you go to a rehab, nobody's giving you a little bit of heroin and a little bit of heroin, a little bit of heroin to to wean you off. No, you're at the rehab center. You're off drugs, pal. That should be, it seems to me, that should be your attitude with these addicts. You're off drugs. Here's the question. Would you go back into the cave if you would escaped. And that's it. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. I mean, I have been, you know, you're like, I'm, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying. And I have been pondering changing the final exam, even prior to our conversation, I've been pondering changing the final exam to something like that, getting rid of the short answer, expanding the long answer in a way that just, uh, you know, gives them the opportunity to write a even longer, you know, response, fill the whole blue book or whatever. And so I might do that, I, but I would still would resist at least on the midterm because again, these typically are freshman students coming from a certain approach to education and now they're being blasted by something else. And I'm just not confident for, you know, some of the students really never quite take to it. You know what I mean? And I don't want to completely leave sort of leave those students in the dust or abandon them or, or frame the class and the exams in a way that leaves them getting nothing. At least this way, they're still learning about the concepts, even though it is in that less, you know, uh, appropriate or proper way you know it's well, more it, memorization or whatever yeah it's not education to me anyway <laughs> i i think if you treated the first exam this is it's a midterm and a final or two mm-hmm. two exams and a final uh midterm and a final okay i would strongly advise not that i have any influence over you anymore i would strongly <laughs> advise you move to a three exam setup the first uh-huh. exam is strictly diagnostic are they capable of learning? Are they capable of comprehending what they're reading? Mm-hmm. Yeah, multiple choice, short answer, uh, matching. That's all. That's it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have a couple of short essays in there. 
for those who are loquacious, want to write. Uh, the second one is, is, the, is the exam you just described. And the third one has none of that diagnostic bullshit in there. Right. Uh, but you give them, you give them a, a okay. <laughs> By the time you get to the final, you're going to have a, if you follow this path, you're going to have a sense of the, the students in the class. Some of them seem per perfectly capable of comprehending, but they're struggling a little bit applying what they're learning to a novel situation. Some of them are struggling with comprehending. And some of them are uh, e easily doing the, the parts they've been inured to do from middle school and high school mm. and uh, are performing in a different way on the, on the essays. Okay, then the final has to be sort of clever in which people can pass, right? <laughs> Even though they might not be able to move from comprehension to understanding. Right. They can still pass the exam. There's enough questions in there that you, you can get a sense that they could pass the final if they could just identify what the cave was, how it operated, what happened to the person, you know, they could do right. the basics. And that might be even just sort of in the, in the rubric or whatever that I established for yeah, if you just assessing, what, you know, <laughs> you just repeated what you had in the question, what you just right. read is the question. You, you <laughs> right. Somehow, exactly. Yeah, just repeat that. Then they're yeah. either then you get a C, you know, or whatever. Yeah, you get a C, right. Yeah. So you're either demonstrating that you're completely lazy and you you are perfectly capable, but you haven't done any work at all during the semester. And so you're just using your skills from high school and regurgitating in an interesting way. Right. Uh, I, 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 the, the reason I, I said to you, you said <laughs> you didn't want to do that much grading. And I said, so what? I, I don't know that you're grading in the right way. Mm. How so? Well, if you take your essay, let's say that essay was the whole exam. Mm -hmm. then, what you, then what you're doing is you are assessing the nature of the argument mm. or the position presented by the student. That's all you're doing. I mean, it's not, I don't know that you have to look to, to write comments in such a way that you have to then feel you need to, uh, how do I justify it to your department chair? Right. I mean, you're, you're just, you're assessing an argument, but at that point, you're not looking for details. You're looking for the nature of the argument mm. and the details will be, will come out. They'll be supportive unless it's just, you know, the kinds of stuff that, you know, you're familiar with and I'm well familiar with the students who don't have an answer. They're just bullshitting. They're just throwing <laughs> stuff out there. They're not saying anything. Right. I get it, some of those yeah, inevitably. And, yeah. and maybe they're well-written, but they're just, they're just vacuous. Right. Uh, but I'm just I'm just pushing you here because I I think you would you would feel even though you might find yourself doing more grading in the sense of spending more time I think you would you would feel uh, more satisfied mm. in doing it that way because you're you're almost talking to them as if they're uh, I don't want to call them peers because they're not but they that you're treating them seriously. Right. I just, I just don't know that, that any instructor or professor who offers the kinds of exams that can be graded with a machine, <laughs> which is sometimes uh, uh, inorganic and sometimes organic machines, meaning TAs, uh, 
uh, are worth giving. I just yeah. don't think they're worth giving. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, that that also might like be part of the gap here because you're also drawing and like your, you know, your well of experience is 30 years of being a professor with access to TAs and with a full-time salary. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm still a PhD student I, and my priorities are a little different. You know, I'm just an adjunct in this context. And so like, I have to also bear in mind, I do the best I can to structure the course while also finding ways to meet my needs, meaning focusing on my actual PhD, which is more important than the course for yeah. me, Yeah, you know, right? Yeah. Whereas if I were an assistant professor on a tenure track with more time, ideally, I guess, to focus on teaching, although that may not be the case, uh, you know, when I get there, I don't know. But then I, I might have the luxury of reorienting the class in this fashion. I, I And I mean, I'm going to take everything you've said and definitely think about it and try to, I'm always well, seeking to improve the class. Yeah. It's not as if you haven't thought about these things before. I mean, you taught, right. When you taught at Scottsdale Prep, you, you were dealing with the, the same issues. So it's not right. as if you, you, you haven't thought about them, but you do, you're, you're, you do have extenuating circumstances in your particular case. Right. So that, that makes, that makes sense. But um, yeah, it's just something, something to think about. It would be interesting to do as an experiment <laughs> to maybe offer the final exam as a choose one or two essays Choose, choose one of the following three or two of the following four and write about them. Yes. And just eliminate the short answers, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I have, like I said, I have been thinking about that. But make them the way you open-ended, the way you described it, where it's not saying uh, what happens to the man freed from the chains. Right. It's does he go back into the cave, which, right. Is, which right. presupposes they understand what was going on in the cave why there might be reluctance to go back in. Uh, and that that's interesting. They, they have to build on that. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's what I do in both, in all the long answers on both the midterm and the final. The operative sort of verb in the prompt is always imagine. Imagine you are this. Imagine, you know, put yourself in this position and I get them to enter into the text and into the sort of, uh, line of inquiry through that process. And I think, I mean, that's also something that I, that I learned from you from some of the questions that you would use. Like the one that always stuck with me was something like, you know, imagine that you're in the afterlife and you're sitting with whatever Plato and somebody else and you're having, you know, how would they interact or, you know, there's some focused question that you would follow that up with. But I remember now, how, having... how quickly would, how quickly would they succumb to blows? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah. But I, I just noticed that as I was reviewing the exam recently, you know, that I, that every prompt uses that word imagine as, as the key sort of verb for the students. And I think like that alone kind of makes me happy. Like, at least I've got that, <laughs> you know, yeah. at least the, at least the exam is, is orienting them that way enough, you know? Yeah. So that well, we could have short short circuited this conversation if you had just said, 
hey, I'm an adjunct. I'm a PhD student writing uh -huh. a dissertation. I really don't have time to put 100% of myself into this course. Exactly. But no, I didn't want to okay. do that because I always appreciate your insights on these types of things. And I keep it in my back pocket for future instances when I have the opportunities, you know, well, when like for example, I'm going to hopefully be teaching my own course at Columbia next year. Well, you know? I was going to, I was going to ask you about that because I, right. I would be, I would be really surprised if anyone encouraged you to give the same kind of exam at Columbia not because it's Columbia, but because of the nature of the course you're going to be teaching. Right. To get the same kind of exam there that you're giving at Fordham. Exactly. I mean, I think I, I don't know whether they have sort of standard practices or what in the core curriculum at Columbia. I will learn that. Like I know there's an orientation and sort of an onboarding process, assuming I get this position that I'll be applying for. Um, but I mean, I would... I would still, I would want to bring something like what I'm doing with this exam, like a written exam, you know, certainly not, I'm not going to switch voluntarily to like a multiple choice or, or whatever type thing. Um, but I guess we'll see. Well, I'd be stunned if that were the case. Yeah, me too. I, I would, I'm not, I mean, you, I'm not suggesting that I think that's the case, but no, what, no, I no, don't, I just don't I, know what to expect. You know, no, I think we're going the opposite way. I can't yeah. not imagine that in a great books program, you are going to, to reduce the great books to, true and false matching <laughs> and multiple choice questions, right? That, right. that, that, that just not. seems to be defeat the whole purpose of the thing. Although agreed, you're also reading great books in the philosophy course, um, right. which is why I guess I'm pushing about that. But I think, again, I come back to your answer, which is, Hey, this is a part-time gig here. <laughs> right. I'm not being paid very much. And I got a lot of other things going on that are more important. Go, exactly. Yeah, okay. And I it's also you. not a great books curriculum. The students no, are no, prepared no. for that and they are not, uh, expecting or whatever. That's why I was saying like, it's already a shock that they're getting what they're getting from me, you know, yeah, to many of the students. Is the, what is the, is there a uniformity across the, uh, across the course, the introductory philosophy course? Only in uh, the readings and especially the requirement that 40%. Oh, right. 40 we talked percent, about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Aquinas not Aquinas. Augustine, Augustine is required. Plato is required. Is that right? Plato, Augustine, Aristotle, and Descartes are all required. Yeah, for whatever reasons. So every, <laughs> I mean, every Augustine's course, obvious, but yeah, every course will have them. Yes, and then, but I've okay. seen like I have several syllabi from other professors who've taught this course, and like. I don't know. A lot of them focus on like niche, like they'll do those four and then they'll do like niche sort of contemporary work on like their special interest, you know, <laughs> like philosophy of science or something. I'm just like, what the fuck are you giving to these students? Why? Like, why? <laughs> you know, well, I think they're they're trying to use the course uh, to their own benefit. In some Probably way, to some. Yeah something that they either have read and want to think about or who knows, you know, they know it well, they don't have to prepare the text. Right. And that's, I mean, there's some merit to that, but like, okay, you know, give them Thomas Kuhn, you know, not some uh, obscure journal article from 2017, you know, in yeah. my opinion, yeah. like give them, give them something comparable to a great text in your area of interest. Yeah. You know? Well, that so. would make more sense. <laughs> yeah, but that that then that's 
you know, not, not every instructor sort of foregrounds the students' priorities, or at least tries to, you know, in the way that I, I think I at least try to, um, like you said, they're more interested in their own little world, the instructor's little world. Yeah, but, and, and many of those worlds are pretty narrow. <laughs> exactly. Well, I hope okay. it's a different experience with the great books, core curriculum, whatever it's called. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, uh, we'll see. I still have to apply and get the whole thing. So I don't want to count my chickens before they hatch as, uh, my roommate is fond of saying he likes all the American idioms. So the German, this is what, yeah, the German is. Yeah, this is yeah. what he's learned from being in America. Mm-hmm. Idioms, cliches. Exactly. All right. Well, I'm sorry. I dragged you across the coals there. No, no, I appreciate it. I invited it when you said, I don't want this to become Jack versus Rory. And I said, why not? So (laughs) that's true. You did. I asked for it. (laughs) And I gave it to you. That's good. Yeah. All right. What else is happening? What else is going on? What else is going on? I don't know. I mean, I've been watching a lot of movies and shows lately. Like we already talked about only murders in the building, but I wanted to ask you about sort of an obscure movie that I watched recently on the recommendation of my roommate as well. We all watched it together. It's an old Roman Polanski film called The Fearless Vampire Hunters or Killers. You, you know about this? No. Oh, fuck. I was hoping you were familiar with it. No. Um, it's like a sort of very physical comedy based, like sort of satire of the Dracula movie. Um, but if you haven't seen it, then there's no point in trying to talk about it. Uh, but I would look to any listeners who are still listening. Um, this movie, I highly recommend. It's sort of slapstick. It might not be for everyone. You'll know within the first probably 10 minutes if it's for you or not. But uh, I found it to be hilarious. You know, I don't. I, mean, I, I haven't seen many Polanski films. And I know he's kind of uh, whatever people have strong opinions about him. He's been accused of certain things. Yeah, I don't I don't know a ton about all of that, honestly. And I don't I don't it's really not very care. complicated. Yeah. I, well, he I ra- just he raised just a child. Know. OK, well, then that's fucked up. And, that, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's pretty much that it's that simple. OK, well, then. Yeah. So but then that perhaps raises an interesting question or maybe not an interesting question, which is like the extent of separating artists from artwork. Uh, I mean, we've talked about Woody Allen before, you know, and you were somewhat defensive of him here. You're suggesting it's more cut and dry. I'm not familiar with the facts of the case. Maybe there's a documentary I can watch or something to learn about Polanski, but I mean, he continues or maybe, I don't know if he's dead now or not, but he, he continues or to make, you know, well-received movies uh, up until fairly recently. Anyway, I, I haven't really followed his movie making history mm. i agree with you it raises an interesting question but my first concern before we dive into the question yeah. is whether we've talked about this before <laughs> the podcast <laughs> we might have are I we mean, now we... repeating what things we've said before yeah exactly we're descending into senility yeah well i'm already there yeah, yeah. May, i mean I maybe I, like I, we touched on it i think with woody allen yeah um remember- yeah, I, I think it's a good question. Uh, 
if I remember correctly, the only two movies that I re- I recall from Roman Polanski uh, are Rosemary's Baby, right, and Chinatown. Oh, okay. Oh, that's him. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's Polanski. I don't know. I know Rosemary's Baby is. That's just the one I've heard yeah, of. I but think Chinatown is. Now I don't remember Rosemary's Baby that well. I mean, I saw the movie and it was just a movie. Mm. Chinatown, I thought was really well done okay i so i recognize that polanski is is controversial that he is a uh at least in one fashion a monster Mm. and it may very well be that i would then refrain from watching polanski's movies that Mm. doesn't then lead me to say he's not a good or great artist and it's the same thing with Louis C.K.'s comedy or Woody Allen's movies. I don't know that Woody Allen was diddling his his uh, stepdaughter or daughter, adopted daughter. I already forgot. I watched the whole. I documentary think it was his series. adopted daughter. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was biological. Actually, I could be wrong. It was his daughter, Dylan. Yeah. Right. Oh, shit. No, no, wait. Is that right? Yeah, I think pretty, that's right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure she's his real kid because I think she was like kind of a surprise. Well, I know something. there's <laughs> some controversy about Ronan Farrow. Yeah. He always he... kind of struck me as a douchebag, honestly. <laughs> well, I mean, he, <laughs> I, I wasn't going into his douchebaggery. Yeah. I was going into his, his genetics. Oh. Uh, there was some controversy. He's he is has been declared to be the offspring of Woody Allen and Mia Farrow, but everyone says, "Oh my God, he's a spitting image of Frank Sinatra, oh, who is having, oh, a fi- having an yeah. affair with Mia Farrow." So I, I don't true. know about that. Well, but anyway, he my, certainly doesn't look like Woody Allen. <laughs> no, he does not look like Woody <laughs> Allen. But I, I don't. For me, yes, personally, I might have trouble uh, watching a Roman Polanski movie again, but I but I don't then gainsay his art. Mm. Uh, and same thing as I said with Louis C.K. Uh, Woody Allen, I don't know. I mean, the jury for me is still out there. That, that's a murky, strange situation. If, as we've said before, if you look at both sides of this, the documentary mm. and then the response, the response, um, what was it called? By the way, Woody Allen is innocent. Was that it? Something like uh, that. that's the counter narrative, the counter, I guess. Yeah. Counter from, to the documentary. Right. Um, but I don't know. Do, what's your, what's your view? If you have a, you know, is it possible that um, in your estimation, does, is Heidegger suddenly a shit philosopher? Uh-huh. He may have been a shit philosopher from the beginning, but <laughs> right. does his philosophy suddenly change because he was a Nazi? Right. I mean, yeah, I, I guess for me, my sort of baseline assumption is that everyone's a piece of shit, including myself. <laughs> and like, and so like, I'm not stunned or uh, I don't know. It's never, I don't think it's unusual to find that people have these types of problems. Now, of course there's, there's differing degrees, right? You know, whether you've uh, uh, embezzled money from your company versus in Polanski's Polanski's case, evidently raping a child. 
uh, you know, you can make distinctions. It's not that every, that immorality is flat, you know, but at the same time, if for me, if I walk into every situation with that assumption, I kind of just take it all together. And, and for that reason, have very little difficulty separating or abstracting the art from the artist. Uh, because I'm just not, like I say, I just expect that most people have these types of problems of one degree or another in their personal lives. And so all artwork is going to be afflicted with that kind of burden or legacy. And so I kind of silo it. It's like, if I want to explore that side of things, then fine, I can do that. And I'll go down that path, examining the the biography of the artist or whatever and evaluating that and even connecting it with the work but then at the same time i have no trouble just flipping over and saying you know i'm gonna look at this piece or this film strictly kind of on its own um and i don't know i guess i think i do think that some of why most people maybe don't take the approach that i just described has something to do with like the American obsession with celebrity culture, right? Because like there's, then there's also this sort of business and like discourse that the tabloid, let's say the tabloid realm and paparazzi and all this, that's like fascinated with artists and celebrities and famous people like in and of themselves that I think maybe feeds or fuels some of this stuff. Like even that documentary on Woody Allen and it's like, then there's this counter documentary and now there's all of this is being aired out publicly. And how do we know like what's true and what's not? And you have famous people conspiring and maybe it's all for PR, you know, or for exposure. Like, I don't know, man, you know, just, just get what I'm getting at. Like, so for me, it's like, it's just this fucking morass of bullshit and everybody sucks anyway. <laughs> so like, you know, let's just, let's, let's separate these things. Let's just have that be our starting point. I guess that's what okay. it comes down to for me. <laughs> yeah. Your starting point is everyone's a piece of shit, including you. <laughs> Therefore it should be expected that humans will display their, foibles and flaws in various ways right sometimes people do it through art sometimes they're artists but they their grotesqueries don't flow into the art right, right? sometimes it does sometimes right. it doesn't right is grotesquery a word or is you just i don't know i like it sounds good no that's a great one okay yeah yeah uh, okay i i don't start with quite that dark a view of of humans, oh, okay. uh, including myself. I, I, I think I have flaws. I think uh -huh. every human has flaws. I don't think of myself as a moral monster. Well, yeah, that's I, why. And that's why I said, I'm not like saying that there's a flatness to this, you know, just that. <laughs> well, okay. So then you have to show me the gradations of, of, of shit in pieces okay. of shit. Yeah, that's fair. So, but you start with the, <laughs> a, a deplorable view. Right. The people starting at not just at the bottom, they're they're, at yeah. The, they're, they're yeah, they're at the bottom of the of the septic tank. 
Right. They're, they're, you know, they've, they're they've floaters, sunk, maybe sometimes. Oh, they're not even float. Flo- <laughs> floaters would be an, a benefit. They're, they've right. sunk down. They're a heavy duty, thick piece of shit falling to the bottom of the septic. Sewage. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, unlike you, I'm not interested in separating art from the artist. I'm fascinated by the connection between the art and the artist. So, yeah, no, I am too, but go ahead. Like, like I okay, say, that's so just different streams for me. I, I will not be able to watch the movie Manhattan mm. because there are these intonations of, of child abuse mm. in there because the woman that he is dating is underage, a 17 year old woman dating yeah. a 34 year old man. I saw the clips from that in the documentary series. I had never seen that movie. And I was like, this guy is pretty brazen. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but it may be that first of all, I'm not, I'm not assuming that he is guilty of the things of which he's been accused. Right. But you begin to wonder when you look at the art from this artist, whether there aren't these, there isn't an undercurrent here. Right. That that may may have some elements, you know. Seventeen still, seventeen year old is not a five year old or six year old, right? I do, uh, yeah. Okay. There is a on distinction. the other hand, I I believe I could still watch the movie Manhattan Murder Mystery, another Woody Allen comedy, because as far as I can see, it doesn't have really anything to do with this aspect of his life. Clearly, it has to do again because I'm interested in the life of the artist. It has to do with his life in New York. Mm-hmm. people he's encountered places he goes the city itself the city itself is always not is more than just a backdrop it, it's a, a character in his movies sure yeah um so that's fascinating to me but again i come back to my position if i'm if i'm a, a appreciative of, of bill cosby and, and now we're getting into really sick territory here right if right. i appreciate his comedy and suddenly all these reports come out that he is a rapist, a serial rapist. Mm-hmm. I don't immediately think, well, his jokes aren't funny anymore. Right. I might not be able to enjoy him or enjoy them, but I, that doesn't mean I think, oh, well, his, his art is trash. Right. You know, this guy can't paint. This guy can't write. This guy can't sculpt. This guy can't tell jokes. This guy can't make movies. No, right. I don't think that. Why does that suddenly change the view? Unless, as I said, there's some content that's spilling over into the into the accusations or mm. in Cosby's case, the convictions. Right. Yeah, that that would be if he was making jokes about dates with women and <laughs> you know how you get on with them when they're when they're uncooperative, th- that'd be a that'd be a problem. You know? Right. Where it's really leaking into the content of his art in a way that is disturbing. Yeah. yeah you know? So but this brings us to the case of dave Chappelle, <laughs> right yeah which is on ongoing yeah now i haven't seen his latest special neither have i but it's garnered as as you know an incredible amount of criticism publicity to be to be fair and criticism to be a little more pointed mm. uh but i don't know that it whether it is or isn't funny right. I, I don't know i haven't seen it I, I don't immediately assume it can't be funny if, if it turned out that he is a uh, he's transphobic. Does that automatically mean that none of the jokes in there are, are, are see all of the jokes cease to be funny? 
right. because he's transphobic. I don't know. I, I would think I would think no. Some of them can be funny. They're funny. Now the ones about trans uh, transgender people uh, that may take on a very different color, right? From uh, from what I'm thinking before all this came out. Yeah. So I don't know. But I just yeah. I, yeah. I was just gonna say like I agree. I think I agree with a lot of what you're saying and like. I mean, I guess regarding Chappelle, I, I need to see the special. I've seen some of his other recent specials and they have, he's been sort of fixated on this topic of, of trans people for some time now, which like in and of itself at this point, the pattern of it, even regardless of the content is not necessarily damning, but it's like, you know, kind of, dude, there's a lot of other stuff <laughs> to joke about. And you're getting like pretty severe backlash on this. And I understand he wants to prove a point about free speech or whatever. But at the same time, like, you know, I, I feel like he's almost diminishing himself because he has always had such a wide range of social critique in that he's now becoming captured by his own ego, I guess, on this topic because he, he wants to reject completely the premise of the criticisms, which seems to be on my understanding, a lot of what he does in this latest special, which we, you know, we both need to watch before we speak too much on it. But I have read that he sort of uh, brings up something to the effect of like, oh, you know, I had this trans comedian friend who liked my jokes basically. And it's like, well, that's not enough to make it okay uh but at the same time like i do i I also very much support his what seems to be his underlying position which is that everybody can and should be made fun of including trans people including black people including white people whatever you know it's how you do it then that matters, you know, but to say that anyone or anything or any class or group of people is somehow off limits from mockery and humor is to me just completely preposterous. And I, and I do get the sense that some of the pushback is sort of to that effect. It's sort of um, coming from this place of like, you know, trans people are especially vulnerable and that's, that's very much true. Uh, you know, like rates of murder among the trans population and especially among the black trans population is appallingly high and they have all kinds of other problems. Nevertheless, for, for me, that that doesn't matter in terms of that doesn't mean that they are then off limits from sarcasm, humor, et cetera, et cetera. And so if that's what he's about, then I'm 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 with him. If there's some genuine transphobia coming through, which I'll need to assess, mm-hmm. you know, then fuck that, you know, then he's got a problem that he needs to address, I think. Yeah. As you said, neither of us has seen it, so we can't really, really <laughs> comment. Uh, I know that part of the, of his defense has been to blame the audience. Right. Which is not a good tactic uh, as a comedian. Yeah. Now there, there may be good reason for him to say it, 
but it, I, I agree with you that that's rarely a strong position. You and I have had this this conversation maybe online. Online? Are we online? Occasionally. Well, more what, so when I've used that Twitter, I guess. What is this? What is this that we're doing now? This podcast? Is this is this an online thing? What is this? It's called? technically online. Okay. So <laughs> it's over the internet. So during the <laughs> when we're the tubes, we're, the series of tubes, right? When we According are, when to we're, that when Senator we're, from Alaska. Uh, yeah. Ted Stevens. Yeah. When we're uh I don't know if we've talked about this. We you and I've talked about it before. Bill Maher when a joke falls flat, we'll blame the audience. Yes. And increasingly so as yeah. he's gotten older. Yeah. And it's, it, and you and I've had the same comment. It's not funny. No. Yeah. Now, that's is, a you problem, Bill Maher, yeah, not an and audience. This is what problem. I find. This is what I find troubling about Bill Maher. And maybe this is true of Dave, Dave Chappelle. And again, the disclaimer is we haven't seen the, the special, mm-hmm. but Maher, I don't understand this because the one thing I know that stand-up comedians do is that they test their material. Right. And when jokes fall flat, they take them out. Right. Or significantly Mar- modify. Or, or modify them. Yeah. So, you know, this isn't working. That's right. the whole point of going out on the road in these little clubs before they do a, a Netflix special, for example. Mm-hmm. They want to test the material. When Mar is on real time, I guess he just assumes the jokes are all funny because when they don't work, he goes, Oh, too soon. Or, Oh, you're oh, the snowflakes. Don't like it. No, right. It's not funny. The right. joke isn't funny. And then you can tell the audience is uncomfortable yep. and in- increasingly they're laughing to be polite because they yes. know he's going to turn on them if they don't. But this is the, this is the issue. If th- th- that is the great denominator, if it's funny, Okay, I, I will cut you a tremendous amount of slack. Right, right. right. So, if if the comment is something about a trans woman who said, you know, well, her taste in clothes are shitty now as they were when she was a man. Right. Right, maybe, yeah, maybe there's a joke in there. Ha 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 ha. But if it's just mean spirited and cruel, right? Uh, I, I, you know, you've gone. You're, you know, you're not doing comedy. You know, if it's not funny, don't do it. I mean that. <laughs> If, if you get laughs, I mean, yes, I'm sure Nazis got laughs when they took, they, they said things about Jews. I'm sure that was hilarious. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. Uh, so that can't be the sole criterion. <laughs> People are laughing <laughs> there. They're, yeah, you have to look at the, at the, the stream that's flowing through this joke. Yeah. Right? And is it, uh, is it transphobia? Is there transphobia coming through here? That, that that's the joke. Exactly. But definitely, I think you're right to point out that like, I mean, the whole thing about like stand up comedy in particular is like you're you're crafting whatever you're saying for the express purpose, express purpose of eliciting involuntary laughter from the audience. Right. It's got to it's got to be involuntary in the sense that it's like they just laugh spontaneously in response to what you're saying. They're not sitting and thinking about it and then then evaluating and like, oh, is this okay or whatever is this and all these types of things. It's just boom on the spot, an outburst of laughter. And like if you're not getting that in the case of Bill Maher, like that's a piece of feedback that you should be as an artist or as a person concerned with your craft you know, incorporating yeah. into your 
process, right? Not just saying like, hey, motherfuckers, you you know, you're wrong. I'm funny. Laugh at me. Like, what's he going to start holding up a sign that says, please clap, you know, like Jeb Bush, like, please clap. Yeah, I agree with you. This is input that you ought to to be grateful for. Right. But I suppose when you're on live television, you're not doing your stand up on the road. People don't laugh. You're, you're embarrassed. Mm. Uh, yeah, he is, saying, certainly. Instead Mar of saying, well, well, that's a joke that didn't work. Okay. Uh, yeah, I got to, well, we got to work on on that joke or my delivery or whatever it's going to be. Instead, you, tur- you turn against the audience. I, I just, I find it to, to be odd. Now, I, again, I don't know what Chappelle has done. I mm. don't know what he's doing. Um, but it certainly doesn't lead me because I've seen all of his specials up to this, this mo- up to this most recent one. Yeah, I, I consider him to be clever and smart and funny. Definitely, uh, I agree. And, and now maybe, as you say, he's gotten on a soapbox about about the trans issues. But you're also right to say I have a <clears throat> excuse me, I have a uh, a transgender comedian friend, right? Who validates therefore, my friend? Yes, therefore my I comedy. can say yeah whatever I want about transgender issues. Right. That's ludicrous. And like, it's also like the most stereotypical thing that white people do to say they're not racist. Oh, I have a black friend, you know, like, yeah. so you would think he would be familiar with that. And I, he's probably joked about that, honestly, uh, in the past, like he's probably has some joke to that effect at somewhere in his career and his repertoire, you know? Yeah. I, I, I'm also with you on the, uh, at least what you were implying I, I don't understand the the whole nature of, of transphobia. I don't yeah. get it. What? Why is this threatening to people? I don't I don't understand it. That's a that's a great question. Honestly, I mean, yeah. I, like for example, I've really only had one sustained interaction with a trans person. I've met you know quite a few of in my life. But I had a, a TA uh, during a, the summer program that I used to work on who was trans. And I did see the way that he, so it was female to male transition. And the bullshit that he had to deal with was unbelievable. Just a constant onslaught of like, not just microaggressions, which in my opinion are very like real people mock them, you know, but like, those are very real things or they can be. Um, But also just sort of straightforward, like, I guess we could call hate, you know, like just uh, uh, a rejection of their essential humanity. And so, uh, you know, I, I try, I, I obviously had no problem with this person and I went out of my way to make, try and make sure they were as comfortable as could be. But even within the hallowed halls of Columbia, right. You know, and among this small group of people that I was working with, we still had a rather serious issue with one of the other TAs that was like misgendering and causing problems for this trans individual, you know, and uh, so, I, so I say all that just simply to emphasize that I, I definitely believe that trans people 
are likely to face some of the most overt and pronounced bigotry. Where does it come from? That is such a big question that we could probably spend the next 10 episodes talking about it. Honestly, uh, I think it has a lot to do. Like, let's just focus, for example, on the whole bathroom controversy. What's that all about? You know, this, this obsession with making sure that, you know, quote unquote, men aren't sneaking into the ladies room or whatever. Meanwhile, it's like, well, why I don't, yeah, go ahead. If you have I was going to say, say, I, I understand where, the concern comes from. Yeah. The concern, of course, is that men hearing now that if they dress as a woman, mm. they are welcomed in the women's locker room, women's restroom. And so they will then say, oh, this is an opportunity for me to, to put on a skirt, lurk in the restroom and rape a woman when she comes in. Right. Right. But that's a bit of a It hasn't stretch. happened. Yeah. It's like they have the one case that everyone's talking about where there was consensual sex between these two people. Uh, one of the people said, OK, I'm done. I don't want this anymore. And the, the other the partner forced himself or herself, I don't remember, onto this person mm. in a in a woman's restroom. So it was a man forcing himself may have been trans woman i don't i don't really know but the fact that they had consensual sex before makes the the case complicated right i agree that it can it is still rape but it's a very different situation right it's not like a uh you know almost a serial killer like figure no that's right it's stalking into bathrooms you know and raping people under the guise of being trans you know right this this person was invited the initial time with the consensual sex was invited into the women's woman's room and then i don't remember was invited in again Mm. uh, or just assumed okay but that's the only case that i know about and then there's Mm -hmm. this hysteria about it which i find odd completely odd twisted but from where does it come, right? Because well, much I, of it is... I can only think it has to be traced back to insecurities about one's own sexuality and one's own gender That's identity. Ex- exactly what I was going to suggest as well. Because I don't understand how it is at all threatening to anybody. <laughs> right. What possible difference can it make? If right. you tell me now that you want to transition to a woman, I go, okay. Wow. <laughs> cool. Go tell for me, it, what's man. That, yeah, what's that going to be like? What are you going to do? You're going to go hormone therapy? Are you going to do the the operation how, how's it going to go right how's it going to be I, what but how could it possibly affect me right you know may, and maybe rory rory can be a girl's name hey, okay. yeah absolutely you're going to probably gonna, more popularly a girl's name honestly okay, even st- though it is technically masculine historically you stick with that that's fine the po- I, I can't do the podcast with you now <laughs> yeah right what yeah, 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 you're wearing I, skirts now, so it's yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, we I honestly cancel don't the series. So remember, uh, <laughs> I have a friend who has uh, decided uh, to wear wigs. Ah, uh, yeah, I know. I think I'm acquainted with this friend. I think you are. And when I first saw it, I thought, well, this I don't understand this. So I wrote a note and said, "How's the transition going?" Mm thinking that there was some reason for doing it. Right. 
never heard back. Right. No response. So it may be that that was never the intention and it turns out that wasn't. And therefore he was offended that I would think that he would do that. But why? I don't right. know. That seems legitimate to me. <laughs> right. Putting a wig on to give the, to give a new look to you. Okay. And that look could be because you're, you're transitioning to a different gender or because for some reason, and he had reasons he wanted to wear a wig. Fine. Right. All that's completely legitimate to me. I, I, right. There's a whole spectrum, okay. right? There's a the cross-dressing or whatever. And the, I guess it's sort of an outdated term now, but like transvestite is, uh, and some people are trying to recover it. There's a, ah, oh, there's a famous person who is a cross-dresser and I'm blanking on well, their the, name right now. Well, J. Edgar Hoover. Well, <laughs> yeah, of course. Was a cross-dresser. But of course that's all mired in like, you know, that that's also kind of it he wasn't really out right you know no, it's like no he was a closet cross-dresser yeah and he was of course like a horrible uh surveillance prone you know kind of evil person <laughs> like yeah but but if you you were mentioning somebody who was who was well known or renowned and that was right right who's even yeah exactly but i'm thinking of somebody who's still alive it's like a middle-aged white dude who uh, maybe is a musician I think he's even been on Bill Maher's show since we were talking about him. Maybe I'll remember, but point being is just like, there's, there's a spectrum or a whole range of, you know, uh, sort of gender expression that exists outside of the conventional or traditional binary. And all of it, I think you and I both agree, as long as it's not, I can't imagine how it would, but if, 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 if somehow it's actually harming someone else, cause you know causing violence to someone else then that's not okay for anything right but the standard sort of liberal position is thinking of like the harm principle or whatever is like you just do do whatever you want like anything is tolerated as long as it's consensual and doesn't cause harm to others yeah right so that's my basic position i mean i'm I, i wouldn't call myself a liberal politically but I, I essentially hold that position for most social conventions. Though, although it does, I mean, I have had conversations with people and, I, and I'm intrigued about this, that there are some, you know, there are some people who have been at least questioning, if not pushing back against the sort of increasingly widespread prevalence of gender reassignment surgery in particular as sort of like you know maybe we're rushing into this especially for young people like young teens or even older teens like there can be other sort of sources of gender dysphoria and things like that i'm not completely well versed on this and so i don't want to speak speak out of turn but i am sympathetic to the idea that especially for young people to have a permanent or perhaps, you know, even irreversible, you know, significant surgery performed uh, raises serious concerns, I think. Yeah. For me. I think, yeah, I think that's, I think that's legitimate. As you say, there are, there are going to be consequences to taking certain kinds of actions and some of them may be irreversible Mm -hmm. Uh, and that requires serious consideration but i i do not deny that people who are doing that are by and large doing it with the 
the utmost integrity and seriousness in mind and sincerity yes. in mind. Of now, course. Granted, they can make mistakes and say, oh, my God, what have I done? OK, that that's going to happen. But mm-hmm. I, I, I think my default position is to assume that they they are undertaking this with full knowledge of, of what's of what's coming. Right. Where I see the problem where I see some issues arising is in the in the area of of gender versus sex. Mm. That's where I think issues become murky. So uh, it's difficult for me to dispute biology. Right. I don't have any problem with people self-identifying, however they're comfortable doing it. That binary, non-binary choice is fine. That those are gender issues, but the sex, the sexuality, the sex, not sexuality, the sex is different. Yeah. So I heard Dan Savage uh, talking about this on Bill Maher's show, mm. and I think he made made a sensible case. The concern is that if you, when you have a movement, uh, say for choice and against restrictions on abortion, and you define it as a woman's issue, mm. then you neglect in that category trans men who can still be pregnant and have children. Mm. Mm. So you're essentially like erasing the trans people from the entire conversation. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you've eliminated, well, you've eliminated trans men. Yeah, yeah. Because you've made it a woman's issue and, and they are right. They're they're now trans men. Well, Savage made this really good point. He said, look, when you have voter suppression, <laughs> voter suppression is going to have an effect on some number of white voters as well. Predominantly, the effect is going to be on people of color. Right. And even more specifically, probably given the way it's been going on black communities. Yeah. But there will be whites who are affected. We have to understand that. When you describe your pro-choice position as a woman's issue, yes, it's true. There are going to be some trans men who are going to feel that they are being neglected. But you're missing the the broader point, Mm. which is that the focus is on women. Right. And perhaps for good reason. He's suggesting, yeah. Yes, he's saying for very good reason, because they they are going to be 99 or 95, whatever percent of the people affected by this. Right, right. So, yes, so you don't want to, so his point is you don't suddenly say, oh, voter suppression is going to affect white voters too, or or, uh, the Texas abortion laws are are now, it it isn't just uh, women who are affected, it's trans men. Oh, okay. Some trans men. So it's not even all trans men. It's some some population, some segment of that population. I, I just think we're trying. We're, this is where I think the, the left becomes becomes too extreme, mm-hmm. and then that's picked up, of course, given the political climate we're in, picked up by the right as defining the left entirely. Right, and it's then a, then they cynically manipulate that messaging to undermine the the real point. Right. That, that is the or to undermine the cause of challenging voter suppression in the first place, for example, or challenging abortion restrictions in the first place. Yeah. So they can say they can say, look, we're not suppressing votes at all. 
And even if you think somehow because we are limiting polling places and eliminating ballot uh, uh, drop boxes for mail-in voting, even if you're thinking we're, we're doing that and it happens to affect the black community, we're also doing this to white voters too. <laughs> yes, right. Right. Yes. This is the Black Lives Matter. All lives matter. I was just going to make that connection as well. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, it's a matter of I mean, you can't say everything at once. Right. And so rhetoric, right. I guess, if we want to think of it as rhetoric, like rhetoric does matter. And you have to kind of pick and choose how and how you're going to emphasize things and how you're going to communicate the message. And so if in speaking about abortion, you know, the primary population that's affected is 99%, uh, you know, uh, women who were born biologically women, then there, that, that doesn't mean that it's somehow wrong to focus on them most of the time. Because, yes, <laughs> right? because some, some segment will be left out. Right. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with sex, he said. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> right, I'm, uh, with, with, with sex differentiation. I, pe- people are born with you know, different chromosomes. Some people are born as hermaphrodites. Some people are born right. as- Intersex with, or whatever. Yeah, in, yeah. Yeah, some people are born with wombs. Some people are born with penises. I, uh, okay, what's, what's the point? Right. What are we saying here? Why is suddenly this becoming a major issue? Well, because we want to have something called the women's movement. All mm. right, men can't be part of that. I, I don't know why. I don't know where all of this <laughs> leads. Why it's all stirring up so much? I and yeah. maybe maybe we have one of our five listeners will, <laughs> will will say to us, "You completely missed the point." And I'm happy to say, "Okay, let me hear what the point is." Maybe I have. Yeah. No. I mean, I guess we should always. As I mean, anybody who is listening and. We have low triple digit listeners, Jack. So let's, you know, let's, let's not uh, under. You're not talking about their here. IQs, are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, <laughs> but if they're listening uh, to the show. That would probably be the yeah, case. Yeah, no, that's probably double digit then. But uh, what was I going to say? I was too busy laughing at our own bad jokes. Oh, um, I, to mention that, of course, the caveat for literally everything that you and I say on here is that we, never really know what the fuck we're talking about. That's why we're just bullshitting. We're trying to do our best, uh, you know, covering these or, or riffing about these things. Yeah. But any feedback or like if people, you know, if we're ever misframing things or whatever, you know, uh, we we apologize and we'll try to do better as soon as well, we I learn can't, how to do better. Yeah, I was gonna say, I can't apologize yet. I've got, I've got to know what I've done. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so but I, always, will, I will apologize. In, yeah, I won't <laughs> apologize in advance. Yes. But I'm happy to apologize when you when you catch me in some or catch us in some some mistake, large or small. I'm happy exactly. Here are some exactly. You know, but so like construal. you raise something sort of like the question of like, why is this happening? And like there was there are two things that are sort of swirling in my mind. It's like on the one hand, I think a lot of this, especially fixation on like gender and sex and and the trans community and. I mean, the like racial stuff as well, but that has been so pronounced throughout American history that it's not, it's not as novel, I guess, at least in the popular discourse as uh, trans and and gay uh, issues are. 
but like I have to link it back to the internet right and like the the increasing visibility and the availability of platforms for people that have been marginalized if only because they are such you know an infinitesimally small portion of the population like let's let's be real right you know the trans community is is extraordinarily small the intersex community is even smaller like that doesn't mean that they're invalid by any stretch of the imagination but we haven't necessarily had the tools to amplify their voices and to raise concerns about their particular issues and rights until quite recently. And when we connect that or, or remember that, you know, up until le- like barely a decade ago or whatever, you know, or not even a decade ago, like Hillary Clinton, for example, was not in favor of gay marriage, you know, uh, like these things yeah. are super, super recent and changing and beco- entering into awareness at a at an incredible pace. Yeah, and but but, but they're yeah. still new. But you're right; it's still new. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I it is disheartening to me to hear reports of changes in in language, for example, mm. that have occurred because of these new eruptions. I mean that in a good way Mm. of insight into struggles people have about say gender race, as you said, we, we have been familiar with that for centuries, same with ethnicity. This new one about, about uh, sex and gender is fairly new. Although the sexual orientation uh, is something that's been around for a long time and has been unfortunately, um, force people to to bury their own sexuality. Right, of course. But there was a report that the, I can't remember where I heard this, that the British science journal, The Lancet, Mm. going forward will now no longer use the term woman. Really? But will now only say persons with wombs. Uh, Yeah. Okay, now that seems to me to be, maybe this is wrong. I haven't examined it. I haven't Mm. looked into it. It seems to me to be a concession to trans men. Mm -hmm. Is that necessary? Can we no longer use the term woman? Right. And and don't they call themselves trans women? (laughs) Right. I don't understand. They're not trans persons. They don't say, well, I'm a trans person with womb. Right. You go by trans woman that the term woman still has meaning for you why can't we use the term woman no one is i so it's that sort of thing it's now this 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 movement toward conceding a point that i don't think has to be conceded yes i, I, I think it's too early for that and and it seems to be just an, uh an overreaction right yeah i i mean i would agree like that's I would, I'm now I'm intrigued and maybe, do they have like an editorial explaining their decision to make that change or they've just announced it? I'm just curious because like my gut reaction is, I think similar to yours to say like, uh, you know, it's somewhat nonsensical or considerably nonsensical to me to discard the term woman. Um, That doesn't mean that the term persons with wombs should never be used. They're probably very appropriate uh, 
occasions to use that term, especially in a medical journal. But to say that you're going to replace wholesale the use of the word woman with that sort of, you know, it's an artificial construction. Uh, not that all language isn't bullshit right. anyway. But, but, an, but an unnecessary one, as far as I can see. Right. Which it comes back to Dan Savage's point. Right? Using the term yeah. woman doesn't mean, yeah, yes, there, there may be some trans women who are somehow excluded. Some trans men, I mean, are somehow excluded. I, I, I don't know. But again, my, my thing is like, you can't say everything at once, right? Like yeah. you have to make certain choices. And, you know, like I will always, when I'm teaching, for example, like I will pepper my speech. Like I will try and say as frequently as possible, he or she, or she, you know, her and him or whatever. Like, you know, I'll make conscious effort to do those types of things and be as inclusive as possible as you know, as the situations arise, but you can't always do that. Sometimes I just say he, sometimes I just say she, you know, sometimes maybe we'll just say people with wombs, but other times, and maybe most of the time we'll say other things. I, I would have to assume it's a, a political calculation to some extent that's a, a swinging of the pendulum, you know, uh, or an overcorrection that maybe for a time is a good thing, uh, in, in, in the face of prolonged erasure of these types of people. But at the same time, it kind of smacks of pandering or something like that, or at least it yeah. could, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, yes, it has that. It has that possibility. Because you, you just don't know how, how necessary it is. And now I'm just repeating what you've said. <laughs> right. uh, but you're right. You can't say everything at once. That's a good line. <laughs> Thank you. I'll workshop it. <laughs> I've, been, I've been thinking I'm doing some stand-up comedy myself, honestly. Yeah. Well, you did uh, say, to... <laughs> have you really? Yeah, I actually have. I've been thinking about, I mean, there's so many open mics nights in the area that will do it. You know, you just sign up and you get five free minutes. And not that I necessarily even think that I'd be particularly good at it. I probably wouldn't be, but I I'm very able to speak. I'm, I'm fine with public speaking, right? I can speak to an audience with no problem. And I just thought it might be fun to uh, get on stage and bullshit a little bit <laughs> and endure let, the crickets, you know, let me understand this. <laughs> you're thinking of going to an open mic where you're given five free minutes right. and you're going to go with no material. You're just <laughs> no, going to wing no, it. No, I would, I would put some thought into it. I would put well, some thought into it. Still not reassuring. <laughs> Are you going to have jokes? Are you going to have, is it going to be funny? Well, I mean, if I'm going to do it, then yes, I will. I will make a deliberate attempt to be funny. Yes. Okay. But we'll see. I'm just okay. mentioning that as an aside because it's it's something that you can do here quite easily. And I've kind of always, I mean, you know, it's I think you and I both have delusions of being funny, at least at times. And we both appreciate the connection primarily via irony between philosophy and humor. Uh, and so, yeah, that's just been swirling in the wheelhouse. Okay, I, I'm with you all the way up to then going on stage 
to a microphone. Because you don't like public speaking or you don't like monologuing at least or lecture. Like, you certainly don't like lecture. Yeah. But yes, doing a, a, stand, a stand-up set, it wouldn't be the same. The question is whether it's going to be funny. <laughs> That's for the people to decide. Yes, I'm, it I, is. Maybe I'll pull a Bill Maher and tell them they're idiots for not laughing. Is there a joke that you have told to your <laughs> friends or to your students that has gotten a laugh that you could see yourself working some material around? Or working oh, into definitely. some material. Definitely. Can you give it to me now? No, I can't give it to you right now. It's not, first of all, it's not ready. And, but, you know, this will give you, it's a morsel for you to uh, look forward to in the next encounter. But uh, I'm going to yeah. want the material. I'm going to want five minutes of standard. <laughs> well, then that will motivate me you've perhaps got, to begin You've got two weeks. Something. You've got two weeks. And when we come back, we're going to start with your set. Oh my God, Jack, five you're killing minutes. me. You're you killing got a me. mic right in front of you. You I got more than five minutes. <laughs> I shouldn't have said anything. No, of course you shouldn't. You're an idiot. What's the <laughs> yeah. matter with you? Yeah, exactly. It just kind of slipped out because we were on the topic. But like, yeah, well, I, now I'll, you're committed. I'll just say, like, I, I mean, I frequently I do employ humor in my teaching, not necessarily so much intentionally, as it just comes out when I'm speaking. And like I get I get laughs from the students. Uh, and so that to me, you know, has again, given me the delusion that perhaps I could take that and expand it a little bit. And like, so like where I'm coming from in general is what do I want to exorcise right here? My dread, my existential dread, right? So like there's, for me, there's a, and this was born out and this, or I should say, this was especially sort of reinforced for me when I saw uh, Bo Burnham's recent special on Netflix. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a comedian. I think he's my age. Um, and you should watch this special on Netflix if you get a chance. It's called Inside. And he did it during the pandemic and he was uh, li- living at home or whatever. And he had this one room little studio and he just does these sort of little skits uh, where he uh, is reflecting on the experience of quarantine and the existential dread associated with that. And like this thing has become enormously popular and he's ra- He's basically, you know, making jokes out of the same topics that I'm philosophically interested in. Well, I joke about that shit all the time, but it never occurred to me that people would find it funny. Well, I think they will. Or they, they certainly have for him. Now, the question is, just because I'm familiar with these topics, can I package them in a humorous delivery? Probably not. But maybe. Well, we're going to find out the next episode of the Bullshit Artists. Uh, yeah, we might. We might. No, no, no. Not we might. <laughs> You're committed now. We'll You're see. You're doing five minutes. We'll see. I've been thinking about it. I've been we'll encouraged. We'll I, see. Like, and we'll see. I... I've been thinking about this for some time and I have been hesitant to even mention it to anyone. So I'm a little, now, a little look, shy about it. Yeah. Now this is pathetic. Now this, this is, turned, <laughs> this, this is really, now you're trying to weasel out of doing it. Now it's no. suddenly I'm going to do no, five no. minutes and open mic. Yeah, I can do it. Well, maybe I'm not sure. I don't know. I've been thinking about it. Well, it's in the back of my mind. Maybe I'll do it now. Come on. 
Yeah, then, you're right. You're right. I'm being a coward. I'm being cowardly. Now, what you what need have to I do, got to lose? Nothing. Give me, give me a joke that you've told. I don't usually tell jokes per se. Give, give me a line. Give me anything. A setup. A story that got laughs from your students that you can remember. Uh, okay. I mean, it's not necessarily a joke, but like uh, recently we were talking about. Uh, what were we talking about? Like income inequality, something from Rousseau. We were reading the second discourse. We were talking, he has this uh, sort of comment about how the rich, as soon as they discovered the sort of thrill of subjugating and oppressing the poor, they developed a taste for it that is not unlike wolves that have tasted human flesh and become ravenous and can, (laughs) can only devour human flesh going forward. And I, I genuinely don't remember the exact connection that I made because this kind of stuff always comes off the cuff in the flow of what I'm already speaking about, which is not intending necessarily to be humorous because I'm trying to teach. But I connected it with Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and talked for a few minutes or for a minute about their little space race that they've had, you know, this, this pissing contest between billionaires, uh, you know, who can get to space first Jeff Bezos taking up William Shatner like, uh, you know, a corpse, a a, a prop uh, that he took into space to prove that he traveled with Captain Kirk and therefore he's the one, you know, that's more impressive than the others. So I'm explaining now to you something that I said in a way that was funny, but I'm not saying it in a funny way right now. So you're not going to laugh. But um, yeah, I'm yeah. telling you, when I said it, the students laughed. So now, whether that's a pity laugh or, a, uh, you know, or why is this guy trying to be funny laugh? I have no idea. Okay. But it, it happens consistently enough that I think I could perhaps give it a go. Okay. Neither one of those, neither a pity laugh nor why is this guy trying to be funny laugh uh, would register with you because you weren't trying to be funny. You were just Mm. riffing and the pity laugh you would know, but you weren't weren't going for laughs. You see, that's the difference when you're doing stand up, you're going for laughs, right? That may change everything. So that's why I've said you, you've got to prepare a set. You've got to do five minutes of material. Yes. And well, that's what I'm saying. Like I have to, you have to do it. What does Aristotle say for the things we have to learn before we can do them? We learn by doing them. That's, that's why you have a mic here. That's why you're going to be doing it right here. Five minutes. <laughs> Let's see if you can get me to laugh. Oh my God. And then anybody else to laugh. <laughs> but I'm I've done myself a hole that, now. Yeah. I'm disappointed that you, it's one thing to be doing uh spoken word and yeah. uh, in, in the, in the process, you say some things that are funny. You, you, you know, they might be funny, but you don't care that they are funny. Mm-hmm. Right? You're, you're not banking on people laughing. Stand up <laughs> is banking on laughing. Right. People right. need to laugh. I, I get you. It's a totally, it's a shift in emphasis and it has to be a deliberate sort of product or, or whatever that you're delivering, right. For that you've crafted carefully for the express purpose of eliciting laughs. Right. Right. And so I, I get it. I like, you know, I'm a big fan of comedy, you know, I, 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 so am I. And I know you are. And so and like I consider I genuinely consider George Carlin to be 
one of the greatest political theorists of like the 20th century. You know, you in, you don't even have to just look at his comedy for that. He's given um, various public lectures and things yeah. where it's just phenomenal. His intellect and his insight is yeah. on par with, you know, Sheldon Wallen or some shit. So, yeah, you know, and that's that's also what animated the name of this podcast, as we've mentioned before, the stand up philosopher from Mel Brooks's side of things. So, yeah. Well, you're, you're going to have to start thinking in terms of jokes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand uh, that. Yeah. So now you know, it's not so, just observational humor in a, in a passing remark, you know, n- no. Well, it, it can it has be, to be structured, though. I but think. that's right. It can be if you if there is a punchline there. Right. Right. So I I have nothing but admiration for for comedy <laughs> and stand up comedians because of the the uh, the difficulty of the craft. Mm-hmm. And I see no <clears throat> no greater reward than making people. Well, maybe there's an equal reward, but the but the one I'm thinking of is making people laugh. Yeah, uh, because as you said, it is they're laughing because what you're saying is unexpected, <laughs> right? It, and uh, you, you, and can also can also be as as Carlin demonstrates and others, do, you know, Richard Pryor and Dick Gregory. There's real truth in there. Mm-hmm. You're 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 digging out something, right? The human behavior the human condition that's funny because it's uh, you know, you're not thinking of it that way, but you can see, you can see it reflected in there. Um, But seeing the humor in things and turning them into jokes, (laughs) uh, you know, I don't know. So this isn't especially funny, but Jerry Seinfeld, I don't remember if it was YouTube or was part of his Netflix special he was talking about writing a joke and he wanted to do a joke about pop tarts uh because that's talking about observational humor and he he worked he was working the material working material and he finally got the line uh that for him was the one he could build on either build toward or build around. And the line was, Pop, do you know this line? I don't, not yet. (laughs) Pop-Tarts can never go stale because they've never been fresh. (laughs) And that's, that's a great line. That's a good one. Yeah. But he, he had to, he was trying to figure out what is it about pop tarts, and you know, he was thinking about and thinking about and thinking about it, and then he got that line: "Pop tarts can never go stale because they've never been fresh." Right. So that's what you need to be doing. Yeah, get the little nuggets of uh, revealed truth that can yeah. be packaged humorously. There was a threat that uh, in this contest I entered, <laughs> and in which I failed miserably. Oh, that's too um, bad. <laughs> that the first. Uh, the people who won first, second, and third prizes would would uh, come to Vegas for a ceremony where they would be given five minutes to present their winning essay. Wow, five whole minutes. Yeah, five minutes. <laughs> like, can't even get bother? one joke out in five yeah, minutes. Yeah. So I thought, okay, uh, if I had to get up there, here's how I would open it. I would I would thank the 
this, this was sponsored by a place called the Bigelow Institute, headquartered in Las Vegas. And my joke would be, you know, thanks to Robert Bigelow, the founder of the Institute, thanks to the Institute for giving me this award and putting me in the position of that rare creature who is leaving Las Vegas with more money than he had when he came. Right. <laughs> that was my joke. That is, I think is a simple, effective joke. It's not yeah. going to get like a standing ovation, but it's going to no. make people chuckle for people sure. People will chuckle because <laughs> yeah. it's so unexpected. Right. Uh, it's true. Yep. Uh, and uh, most people coming to Vegas are leaving with their pockets empty. So exactly. yes. So that, that would have been a little joke, but yes. now you've got to start thinking of little jokes now. Yes. And like, I mean, I, I can and will think that way. I've been hesitant even now in this conversation to think that way or to speak that way, because there's something off putting about it to me. I can't quite put my finger on it. It's like jokes are cheap somehow to me, even though I love jokes. And part of the reason I think is like one of my all time favorite comedians on par with Carlin is Don Rickles and yeah. Don Rickles didn't really tell jokes per se. He just talked and was fucking hilarious. Yes. Yes. But he did it by insulting people. Right. Yeah. He that was, was like an insult. Shit. Yes. Yeah, he, he was like, he was the first version of the insult dog. Is that the name of that? Yeah. Triumph, uh, the insult dog from it's, Conan. It's, yeah. Insult comic or whatever. Yeah. Whatever it's called. So. Uh, yeah, but it doesn't have to be. Yes, it has to be jokes. It doesn't have to be the you know, Henny Youngman one-liners right. or, or insulting somebody saying, you know, you have a face like a hockey puck. You know, right. Why don't you get out there on the ice and let us slap you around? It, you know, that kind of that kind of awful stuff Rickles did. And then he'd say, no, I'm kidding. You know, I, I, I tease. I, I say it with love. You know, that's what Mars is all the time. I, I say it Yeah, with love. exactly. Right. Uh, Although he's a dime store Don Rickles at best. Like, yeah, but Mars, some of his nothing. If, if you heard his stand up, some of it's pretty good. Yeah, he, yes, I agree. Like, he yeah. definitely can be funny, but he's not in the same league as Rickles, in my opinion. Yeah, Rickles was never one of my favorites, but I mean, I would not put uh, him up there with Richard Pryor. No, no. Uh, or Carlin. No. Or some of these guys were you know, just, just fantastic. The, how, or even, even Dave Chappelle, he would. Mm -hmm. He would start with stories at the beginning and then he would work at the end of the set. Two hours later, he works back to the story. Yeah. I mean, there's a literary sort of component to it oh, when yeah, it's done absolutely. well, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's all, it's all part of the craft, getting the story right. right. I, I just have tremendous admiration for comics, um, for stand-up comedians. Same. So I'm really looking forward to yours. Oh, God, we'll see. It's a, it could be, a, you know, a stillborn idea, but. Here's a perfect joke. Here's a perfect joke that comes from a comedian. You probably aren't familiar with his name is Jimmy Walker, who was in a mm -hmm. show where he became famous for his catchphrase, dynamite. Oh, okay. But Jimmy Walker was a standup. And he told this joke, which is, it's. I'll just tell it. I won't even say anything more about it. He said, it was raining so hard that I saw Superman get into a cab. <laughs> That's a perfect joke. It's short. It's 
completely unexpected. It's hilarious. Yes. And beautifully describes how hard it was raining. It's raining so hard. I saw Superman get into a cab. <laughs> yes. No. Yeah. I love that sort of punchy and especially something that just subverts your expectations in a swift move like that. I'm not expecting Superman when you start that sentence. You know what I mean? Right. Like <laughs> it was raining so hard and then Superman comes into play. Yeah, but you can like, see it. The image is, is, is instantaneous. You can see Superman. Exactly. <laughs> getting into a opening door and getting into a cab. He's got a uniform, the cape, the whole thing. He's in the car, in the cab. That's hilarious. Yeah. I like All right. It. Well, we uh, ended on a low note, which is good, <laughs> which is actually a high note. As one should. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to your five minutes. Oh, God. Uh, what have I done? And, what, hath, uh, what hath God wrought? Yeah, maybe five minutes is too much for you. Yeah. But, but uh, it's going to be silent on my end for the first <laughs> five minutes. Rory, I'm great. Take it away. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. What do you mean we'll see? You're committed now. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I'll be ready. I don't know if I have enough time. But I do, you know, maybe you this have... will motivate me. Okay, you've got two weeks to come up with. One joke. I was going to say two. Okay. Two jokes. Okay. Uh, maybe they can be related to Plato. Or <laughs> <laughs> so. No, they'll be more, they'll be more personal. I mean, in, in the sense of like what I actually, if I were going to go do an open mic, like what I would do, you know, because that's what I'm thinking of doing. So it's not going to be Plato for that, for a general audience. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. Okay. All right. All right. Until next time, listeners, beware. Bring your uh, your your happy feet, whatever the hell you bring. <laughs> bring a bucket of tomatoes. <laughs> we're like you're lucky. You're lucky we're not live. I mean, exactly. lucky we're not. We're not. Uh, what do I mean? On not, stage, you don't have a studio audience. Exactly. You can throw rotten fruit. Although you could collect enough to make a good salad. Oh my God. Okay. Putting this out of this misery. All Until right. next time, folks. See ya. See ya.
Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>